you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Micah in the Old Testament, in the Minor Prophets. Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4, uh, really beginning at verse 1, reading through verse 5. Micah chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to that mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Amen. 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 Wonderful promise. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray you'd open your word to us and our hearts to your word. We pray you'd speak to us by your Holy Spirit through the scriptures and that you'd guide us and direct us. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, this prophecy in Micah, it actually parallels pretty closely uh, Isaiah chapter 2, where a similar prophecy is given, and uh, God raised up his prophets and had them speak similar things. Micah was a contemporary with Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, right, pretty, pretty quickly, uh, in chapter 2 of his prophecies, Isaiah writes, The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Pretty closely exact words. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen. So Isaiah and Micah pretty well parallel each other. We find this elsewhere that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call the synoptic gospels meaning looking at the life of Christ pretty much from the same perspective 
with slight variation, and as the scripture tells us, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word will be established. So we actually have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, though are very similar the way they write in covering the same material. And then John's gospel, um, if we can trust the history and the traditions that have come down to us, we're told uh, by some early, very early historians that John wrote at the request of the church and the people in Ephesus, and they asked him to write down the things that he had learned about Jesus. So really, John's kind of like a supplement almost to the first three Gospels. Uh, he tells you there's a lot of dialogue, and, and that's why John's Gospel is so unique. He fills in and lets us know certain things like, well, at this point where it says this happened, well, here's actually what was said, so you have a lot of detail. But they complement each other. So Micah and Isaiah are doing the same thing. So we see in this passage a, a wonderful promise of God given in the 8th century B.C. before Jesus came that God's kingdom would be exalted, that he would be ruler over all nations. We see this in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we see it in the promise that's given uh, that Christ indeed will be exalted. In Isaiah chapter 9, we read in, in a very familiar passage. We've just kind of gone through the Christmas season or Advent and Christmas. In Isaiah 9, 6, everybody knows, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Beautiful statement concerning who our Lord Jesus Christ is. But then the next verse is very important concerning the establishment of his kingdom. We're going to look at that this morning. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So we have this beautiful prophecy and promise that's given concerning the establishment of the kingdom of God. Uh, we'll see here this morning some of the things that Christ teaches us. For instance, in the Lord's Prayer that we just prayed, uh, when we can, how do we conclude it? Do we say, for someday yours will be the kingdom and the power and the glory? Is that what we say? No, it's not, is it? We don't say, someday way far off, yours will be the kingdom, and someday way far off, yours will be the power, and someday way far off, yours will be the glory. We don't say that. That's not what Christ taught us to say. What he taught us to say was, uh, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, for or because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Now we look forward to a further manifestation of Christ's kingdom. I'm looking forward to it. There's promises we've been given. We've been told that the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2 tells us that. And so we have these wonder. I believe it's verse 2. We'll look it up in a moment. Uh, we have these wonderful promises that the time is coming when the gospel will be triumphant. You know, the dispensationalism has just done such a wreck on the evangelical churches. And you just might not even know what that word means anymore. Evangelicalism has been wrecked by, if you've ever looked at a Schofield Bible, there's a lot of good things in Schofield's notes, but there's also some pretty bad stuff. 
One of the things that they teach is that, well, this, are, this present age, the, the age of grace, is going to end in disaster and failure. Because they believe there's been seven distinct ages in history and that each one ends in failure and then God comes and saves people by grace. Totally artificial system. It's not taught in scripture. The Bible teaches that God established one covenant in the beginning, you know, between the persons of the Trinity, the everlasting covenant, but then also he established that in time, the covenant of grace, you know, with, we see with Adam and Eve, actually, when God provided for them coats of skins and clothed them and didn't kill them the day that they'd sinned. We see it later with Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Then we see it with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that God established his covenant. With that covenant came the promise of the Messiah, that there would be one who would come who would redeem us. That was given right from the beginning when the Lord rebuked the serpent and said, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Although the serpent would crush his heel, that is the Messiah. And that literally was fulfilled, as I've mentioned before, and as you know. But we see in history God has one overriding covenant, then it was fulfilled when Christ came. The promise was that God would establish a new covenant. Now that new covenant that we're in, if you read your New Testament, it becomes rather interesting because it's really the same covenant that Abraham was saved in. But it's a renewed application. The door's been thrown wide open now. It's not just for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the people of physical Israel. It's actually a promise given to all those that will trust in the Messiah. And so the, the difference between, you know, you say, well, what about the Old Testament and the New Testament? Well, if you're talking about the books written before Jesus came, yes, that's the Old Testament. But the Old Testament, you know, sometimes we say, well, we're not under the Old Testament. Actually, that's referring to the old the word testament and covenant is the same in Greek, diatheke, or brit in Hebrew. The old covenant that the New Testament's talking about that we're no longer under is the Mosaic administration of the gospel. The Mosaic administration of that one covenant, the ceremonial and civil laws have been set aside, fulfilled by Christ, as it says in Daniel chapter 9, when it says, He shall bring an end to uh, sacrifice and offering. It's referring to the Messiah. Christ brought all that to an end. The moral law is still in effect, you know, the, the Ten Commandments, and God is writing that, we're told, in the hearts and minds of his people. That's one of the marks of the New Testament. But sometimes people say, oh, well, we're not under the Old Testament. And so they just think, well, we don't need to read the test scriptures that were written before Jesus came. And that's a foolish doctrine. That's a really dangerous idea. The idea that, well, I don't need to, I don't need to know what the Old Testament says. I'm a New Testament Christian. Well, I got news for you. In the first couple of centuries, well, first century anyway, the scriptures of the church were what we now call the Old Testament. The early church, that was their Bible. You know, it's interesting, I've often thought, now, we never want to give up the New Testament. Obviously, it's a blessing and a treasure. But if all you had was the Old Testament, would you be able to preach the gospel? That's what the apostles did, and that's what the early church did. So when we say we're not under the Old Testament, we mean we're not under the Mosaic administration of the covenant with all the various ceremonies and regulations. But the Old Testament does speak to us. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy and said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for uh, correction, for instruction in righteousness, uh, for reproof also, that the man of God may be perfect, and that means completed, thoroughly furnished to every good work. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 and following. Paul said, all you need is the Bible. That's what he told Timothy. 
He didn't say, well, you know, all scripture is given by spirit, but you need to speak in tongues or you need to have prophecy or you need to listen to whatever voice is in your head uh, telling you it's God. No, he said all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And then if we jump in, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished to every good work. Paul was talking about the Old Testament scriptures when he said that. There had been portions of the New Testament probably written by the time Paul wrote, so that would be included. Now we have the completion of Scripture, and we're told at the end of the, of the writing of the New Testament not to add or take away from it at the ending of the book of Revelation. But God gave his word. His promises stand. When Jesus said time and again, actually when, when the devil tempted him, Jesus said every time, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. It is written, uh, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. It is written, uh, you, the, you shall serve the Lord, only, you worship him only, and him only shall you serve. That phrase, it is written, very interesting phrase in Greek. You know, I've talked about the perfect tense in, in Greek. If you're a grammarian, you know what it is in English. In Greek, the perfect tense is an action that's completed in time past that has present results. All right? So it's a completed action, like when Jesus on the cross, he said, it is finished. The Greek is in the perfect tense. Tetlestai is the Greek word there, uh, and good word to learn. Tetlestai in Greek, it means it is completed and the results continue. It stands finished. When Jesus quoted and said, or when he quoted scripture, but when he introduced those quotes and said, it is written, that's in the perfect tense. It stands written. That is, it has been written, it is a completed act in time past, it has present results. The Bible is the word of God. Remember the scripture we're told, for the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. God's word is alive. It's interesting, in Hebrews 4, if you want to grab your Bible and flip over to Hebrews chapter 4, we'll take a quick look at that. Uh, the fourth chapter of Hebrews. Note what, what the writer to the Hebrews, sometimes we say Paul, but we're actually not told in the book who wrote it. But he says in verse 12, For the word of God is living and powerful. Note that. It's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, you, you can, you know, some swords are sharper. You can shave with them if you're a guy, okay? I, don't think you, I wouldn't recommend it. And don't let anybody else shave you by swinging a sword at your head, Okay? Uh, but it's sharper than any two-edged sword. In the days of the Roman Empire, having a sharp sword meant you could fight in battle and probably prevail. It was very important. Paul's saying, the, the word, or excuse me, the writer to the Hebrews is saying, the scripture is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. What does that mean? Some say, oh, those are the same thing. Well, no, here they're distinguished, Okay. Uh, your soul basically is you. It's your personality. It's who you are. Your spirit, that's you know, the thing that makes you alive. All right? Men that are spiritually dead have souls. Okay? Uh, the scripture separates between those soulless things. By the way, the, uh, the Latin word is a little easier for us English speakers if we go to the Latin and look at it. Uh, the word for soul is anima. So we get the word animal. Some people say, well, animals don't have souls. Well, if you read Genesis, when God sent the flood, he said he was going to kill every living soul of man and beast. Animals have souls. They have personalities. 
You know, if you have a pet dog or cat, <laughs> you know. They definitely have personalities. Sometimes we have the scars from our kitty cats to prove it, you know. Uh, but they have souls. Are they spiritually alive? No, they're not. Okay, man is made in the image of God. Remember, God breathed into man the breath of life. And man became a living soul. So there's a difference between man and the lower creation. It's often lost. The word of God can separate those anima things when we act like animals. And animals are great, but you know they can be a little selfish. They're territorial. You know, they bark, they growl. If you're talking about dogs, the animals are animals. There's no no real spiritual life there. Although you see things in scripture like you know Balaam's donkey that had more spiritual discernment than he did because the donkey saw the angel of the Lord. Balaam didn't. Okay. So animals are interesting, and what they know of God, how that all works out, we leave in God's hands. He, the scripture speaks to us as image bearers of God and as men, and we're told to take care of the creation. We're over it uh, for dominion's sake. That doesn't mean we abuse it. It means we take care of it. But the scripture is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow. That's like your innermost thing, you know, in your bones. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So if you have some brilliant idea or you think you're just being all altruistic and unselfish, you read the scripture and you realize, ooh, there was a lot of me in that good work I did. You know, and we, the scripture kind of begins to show us. And that's why we want to have God's word in our heart. Uh, it says, your word I have hidden in my heart, Psalm 119. Why? That I might not sin against you. Okay, so the word of God will keep us from sin and it'll show us when we're being led astray because it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It can separate between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And then it's interesting because he's talking about the word of God, but then in verse 13 he says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It's interesting that he just naturally transitions from talking about the scripture to talking about God, Christ. Because the scripture is the word of Christ. We know God by his word. Now some will say, oh, that's bibliolatry. You're worshiping the Bible. No, I'm worshiping the God of the Bible. And I love the Bible. I, I thank God for his word. And people, when they say, oh, that's bibliolatry, it's like, I have a feeling the people generally that are saying that just have never experienced the power of God's word because it transforms your life. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? By the word of God, we're told in Romans. And how shall they hear without a preacher? What does this have to do with Micah? Well, God promises that in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be prepared or set up, established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. And people shall flow into. He's talking about the kingdom of God being established on the earth. Jesus said, upon this rock, Petra, this rock, I will build my church. He wasn't talking to Peter. The Church of Rome has done such a, well, in, from their perspective, such a good job of twisting those verses in Matthew 16 to try to get people to think, oh, that's talking about Peter and his successors. No, the word Petros and Petra are two different Greek words. So you are Peter. Petros means a little stone. And a lot of Protestant scholars have failed on that because they go, oh, well, in the Aramaic original, it says you are Kepha, and upon this Kepha I will build my church. See, it's the same thing. It's like, yeah, there's also other mistranslations in the Aramaic. 
all right? Um, but if you go through and look at scripture where you have the word Petros in Greek, it's translated by Kepha, that's Cephas, by the way, in Greek. Uh, but the word Petra, so you have Petras, Cephas, then you have Petra, the Aramaic word exclusively in, throughout the, the Gospels in this Aramaic translation. It's an early translation. And they go, oh, that's what Jesus spoke, so we have to go by it. No, it's a translation from Greek. The, the word that is almost always used to translate Petra is Shua. And I'm pretty sure that's what Jesus, if he, if he was speaking Aramaic, and Christ spoke Greek also. They spoke Greek in Galilee. There's inscriptions all over from that period in the Holy Land. He said, you are Kepha, if it's in Aramaic, and upon this Shua, I will build my church. That's a big, massive rock. And Christ said, I'm going to build it. That's future tense there. He was telling Peter and the others, I'm going to build my church upon the confession that Peter had just made, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So we have this, this promise of growth. The nation shall come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 13 that, uh, excuse me, 12, that we've come to the heavenly Zion. That's where the, the mountain of the Lord is. And I believe this is a reference to the people getting right with God. And they'll say, let us go to the house of God, the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And historically that happened. That's the great commission. They were in Jerusalem and Jesus said, go into all the world and baptize the nations. Or, or he said, go make disciples of all the nations in Matthew 28. Uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So what do you need to know? You need to know everything Jesus had to say. By the way, he speaks in both testaments. And so that's the command. And as I said earlier, the first thing he said before he said, go make disciples of the nations, he, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Christ doesn't need any, anybody's permission to have his church established. The rulers of this world take counsel against the Lord and against his Messiah, and they want to know how to throw off his, his uh, you know, word from their lives, basically. That's Psalm 2 talks about that. But Christ is king. As it says in Psalm 2, God has set his king upon his holy hill of Zion. Christ rules over the nations. Now Jesus taught about the kingdom of God and its spread. In Matthew chapter 13, we have uh, the seven parables that are given there. The first is the one of the sower. It's in Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 23, actually. It's in the other gospels also. But then we have the parable of the wheat and the tares. The sower has to do with the word going out. And there's four different types of, of soil or places where it lands. You know the story. And Christ said, this is the way the gospel goes forth. Some people's hearts, they hear the word, and it gets snatched out of their heart immediately by Satan. I've seen this when he used to do open-air preaching when I was younger. We'd go out and preach the gospel, and you'd get people to be, oh, that's interesting, and then to be a car wreck on the street. All of a sudden, everybody forgets what you're talking about. They run, what's going on? You know, And you look at Nobody was hurt in a car wreck, but you know, it's just stuff like that where... Uh, the devil just goes out of his way to make sure that they forget the gospel immediately. They get all caught up. Later, they would probably even remember. I've seen this happen plenty of times when the word's being preached openly. Uh, you have all types of things happen to get people's minds distracted. It happens in church also. It's not just open-air preaching. That's why it's always dangerous to, I'm going to do it, so stay with me. It's dangerous when you mention lunch, okay? 
people are like, ah, yeah, lunch. Mm, okay, and then what was that preacher talking about? I don't know, but, you know, oh, yeah, there's roast beef or something in there. So don't do that, all right? I, just, I hope I didn't just trip you up, all right? Uh, the enemy will get your mind off the Word of God as quick as he can. And other people, they're like the, the seed that was sown on stony ground. There's never takes root, doesn't actually go into their hearts. And as soon as there's heat, it dries up. As soon as there's trouble or persecution, or somebody says, what, you're a Christian? They're like, oh, no, no. Oh, they want to be with their worldly friends, and so they turn their back on Christ. Others, this is where Christians need to be aware, professed Christians. Some are like that sown among thorns, Jesus said, remember? Where the seed begins to spring up, but then all the cares, Jesus said, all the, the, the deceitfulness of riches and the lust for other things grow up and chokes the word. They bring no fruit to perfection. Professing Christians need to take heed to that one. That's the, the dangerous one. You know, what's going on in your life? Is everything, you know, going is God, you know, according to God's word, or is all your worldly affairs and concerns choking any obedience in your life to the Lord? We need to look to this. You know, how's your prayer life? What's keeping you from praying? You know, and so we need to make sure that we don't allow God's word to be strangled. It, it, now, God's word's powerful, but you don't understand what I'm saying, the parable of the sower. Uh, we can get ourselves tripped up by not weeding our gardens. We need to go to God and say, Lord, get this junk out of my life. It's keeping me from following you. So we have that parable then, but praise God, there was a fourth one. That's the seed sown on good ground. And it brought forth fruit. Jesus said some 30-fold, some 60, some more. So some Christians are more fruitful than others, but they all bear some fruit. And that's the fruit of the Spirit, first and foremost. And then the fruit of good works in serving Christ and doing those things that are pleasing to him. Told the story of the wheat and the tares that in the kingdom of God on earth, there's the wheat, that's as those who've been born again, and then there's the tares, and that's the false professors. You know, how many people, every, every one of us probably knows someone that will say, well, I'm not a Christian because the way I was treated in church. Or I'm not a Christian because that person said they were a follower. Well, that person, they don't know the difference. They'll say that person was a Christian and they was, he was a crook. Or she was wicked, or she you know, lied to me, or he lied to me. Because you have the wheat and the tares. I think I've sh shared with you, I grew up out in the country most of the time. Uh, my dad was a farmer. And I always remember after I began to read the Bible, driving uh, home through the wheat fields, you'd look out, and you know you have tares or you know foxtails, whatever you want to call them. They, they look like wheat from a distance. But I noticed it was interesting, because when it got time for harvest, if you ever driven by a wheat field or barley, any kind of grain, I, 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 look, I, thought, oh, I wonder if that's what Jesus was talking about. The wheat, because it's full of fruit, you know, the grain, the wheat bows its head, and the tears are boom, straight up. <laughs> and I thought, wow, there's an illustration, huh? You know, uh, God's people are humbled by the gifts and the graces they've been given. They bow and worship. The tares, they don't have any fruit, but they're pretty happy with themselves because they get to do whatever they want to, at least in this life, up until they're called to judgment. So we have the story of the wheat and the tares. But then we have two very interesting ones. That's the parable of the mustard seed. And then next is the parable of the leaven. After that, the, uh, the parable of the hidden treasure, the pearl of great price, and then the great net that was thrown out and all kinds were, of fish were brought in, some good and some bad. Talking about building up the church. And they threw the bad ones away, and the other ones they kept. So the, the, two, uh, the third and the fourth ones speak about the growth of the kingdom of God, the parable of the mustard seed. Now, 
we're told that when Jesus gave that parable, uh, this is in Matthew 13, 31, it says, Then another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And then Jesus said, Which indeed is the least of all seeds. Now, I've heard people say that, Ah, see, the Bible's scientifically inaccurate. The mustard seed is not the smallest seed. Anybody ever heard anybody try to say that? I have, okay. Oh, see, it's inaccurate scientifically. Well, guess what? Jesus didn't say it's the smallest. He said it's the least. Okay, remember when Jesus said, and I looked it up, it's the exact same Greek phrase, inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Or if you didn't do it, he wasn't talking about short people. And as much as you've done it unto the smallest ones, well, he does tell us to be kind to children. They're usually generally short. Uh, the least, that is the, the, the most insignificant. And when he says it's the least one in the field, it's the least of all seeds, that is it's considered insignificant. Jesus wasn't saying it's scientifically the smallest seed. Jesus created mustard seeds. He knows there's, he made a whole bunch of other seeds that are smaller. But for the purposes of that parable, he's saying the most insignificant seed thrown into a field would be a mustard seed. Now, if you like mustard greens, it might be good. But Jesus is talking about uh, taking a mustard seed and throwing Nobody thinks anything about it. But if left alone, he said, it, when it's grown, it's the greatest among herbs. That it grows to be the biggest of them uh, and becomes a tree. It's like a tree. So that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. It becomes a safe place for God's uh, birds to land. That's some of us, I think. Um, in Mark 4, Jesus tells a very similar parable. He said, uh, he said so is the kingdom of God, as if a man should cast seed into the uh, earth, and should sleep and rise night and day, and the seed should spring and grow up. He knows not how. For the earth brings forth fruit of herself. First the blade, then the ear. He's talking about grain here. Uh, and after that, the full corn or kernel in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth immediately, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So this parable illustrates the active providence of God. That's really what we need to look at. We see that the uh, parables relate to the providence of God. It's growing. This one does in particular. Uh, men sleep and rise, they go about their daily lives, but even though the sower doesn't know how, but the seed transforms into the full head of grains. God in his providence activates the life in the seed and causes it to grow. That's what he does with his word. He causes it to bear fruit in the lives of those who hear it. God said in Isaiah 55, 11, My word shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing Whereto I send it. The slow growth, from our perspective, is right on time in God's perspective. What did our Lord teach us to pray in regard to the kingdom of heaven? Well, he did say at the end, for, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. But before that, remember the early petition? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's the next thing? Your kingdom come. So we're praying for more of the manifestation of that kingdom. And I believe the next uh, petition actually clarifies what that means. Your kingdom come, your will be done where? On earth, as it is in heaven. One of the sad things about the effects of dispensationalism, because 
The idea is that, well, this age is supposed to end in total, complete failure and complete triumph of evil. And I actually saw a poster where a lady who is a believer, but she's been infected or affected by dispensationalist thinking. She said, isn't it wonderful because the more we see evil triumphing in, triumphing in the earth, in the world, isn't that wonderful? Because that means Jesus is coming soon. And it was, it was kind of made me sick, to be honest, okay? It made me sad. It's like you rejoice in the triumph of evil because you've bought into a false system of eschatology, that is the doctrine of last things, because you think the more evil triumphs, the sooner we're going to be raptured out of here. That's not what's taught in the Bible. Christ said, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, I've talked about that before. Gates are defensive measures, okay? And the church isn't getting beat up by the gates of hell. He's saying, my church will kick in the gates of hell. But guess what that also means? Christ builds his church where the gates of hell exist. He didn't say, I will build my church, and they will have nothing to do with the gates of hell, because it will be a different location, a different place, won't be on this earth. It's not what Christ taught. Upon this rock, this Petra, I will build my church. I will. That's why we know it's going to succeed and why it has been successful. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of Christians dying, in the midst of martyrdoms, in the midst of all kinds of bad things happening in the world, the gospel has been triumphant. And we look, at, we look in the world today, it's just mass confusion. That's all you hear on the media. <laughs> okay? If you listen to, even the Christian radio, if you listen to a, a news broadcast, I have yet to hear one come on and say, and the kingdom of God is advancing. Now, once in a while, you'll get that. You hear about a missionary or you hear about a revival or something happening, and that's always encouraging. But most of the time, it's like, oh, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. What are we going to do? Oh, we're without hope, et cetera, et cetera. Beloved, the gospel is going forth because God's putting it on the hearts of his people to speak up, to talk to others. Some people he's calling into full-time service. Other people like us here, everyone, he's called into full-time witness. You might say, well, I'm not a missionary, I'm not a pastor. Yeah, no, but you're a witness, and that's full-time. At home, on the job. How are you doing on that, by the way? Okay, That's where prayer comes in, isn't it? Okay, So we see these uh, parables, and we see that God in his providence works. The parable of the leaven, remember? That's in Matthew 13, 33. Jesus said, another parable spake he unto them. The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. He's talking about the triumph of the gospel. He said it's like leaven. It permeates, it spreads, it changes things. Okay, those of you who make bread, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, those who've ever been enslaved to a yeast starter or you know, a bread starter, you know, gotta feed, gotta feed the, the starter. Why? Because it's alive, basically. It's growing, it's bacterial. But it grows. Well, he's saying here that the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven because it, it's not a bacteria. It's a good thing. And leaven is good, actually, if it's used correctly. When God told Israel to get the leaven out of their house uh, before Passover, he didn't tell them to make sure it never comes back. Okay? They could have leavened bread throughout the year, except at Passover they were to set it aside. But here Jesus said, It's like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. Providentially, God's word goes forth as we pray for people. You know, God doesn't always answer our prayers within our own generation. We pray for people. You know, God may answer your prayer 50 years from now. I've heard of people that have found gospel tracts going through great-grandpapa's or grandma's uh, trunk, 
You know, they had a trunk they found in the attic. They opened up, there was a gospel tract. They read it, they came to faith. Or they find an old Bible and they start reading. It's been laying around for a better part of a century. But somebody picks it up and starts reading it. Same thing's true with prayers. You, that's why parents, pray for your children. Children, pray for your parents. God answers prayer. Prayer really does change things because you're praying to Christ and he has the power and he hears the prayers of his people. So we have the, the parables. We also have prophecies. We saw this in Daniel. It says that in Daniel, uh, as he is interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, remember Nebuchadnezzar had the dream of the statue. Its head was gold and then silver and it went down. And then Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar what he saw. He says, you saw till that a stone was cut without hands. So he sees this, Nebuchadnezzar saw this. He said, a stone that was cut out without hands, it smashed this image, and then the image just all broke apart. So Daniel says, you saw a stone was cut without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broke broke into pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. That's all the kingdoms of this world he's talking about. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That's what Nebuchadnezzar saw. And then Daniel gave the interpretation beginning at Daniel chapter 2 at verse 44. It says, and in the days of these kings, because he's been talking about the succession of kingdoms that corresponded to Nebuchadnezzar's vision. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. It doesn't say there won't be a fight, but he's saying that the kingdom of God will be triumphant. Forasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. What's Daniel telling him? God's kingdom will come, and it will be triumphant. In Daniel 7, Daniel had a vision, his dream vision. And he says in verses 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. So he's not coming back to earth. Note the direction he's going. And came to the Ancient of Days. This is referring not to the second coming, but to the ascension of Christ, I believe. So I saw one like the Son of Man. He came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. And then in verse 27, as Daniel was given the interpretation of this, he's told, and the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Talking about the church there. The church militant, I believe. Whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. You know, those last chapters in the book of Revelation about there being a thousand-year period where the nations are brought under the yoke of Christ. Uh, wasn't that a symbol? Yes, it is a symbol. It's a symbol of a thousand-year kingdom where the nations will be brought under Christ. I'm quite convinced we will 
hopefully live to see it, at least the beginning of it. It would be nice if the Lord was pleased to do that. But if not us, our children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren, the kingdom of God will be fully established on this earth. The nations will be brought under his yoke. The, the Bible is very clear on that. We just read a moment ago, unto us a child is born. And what did it say? Um, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Come on, Jesus was born. And from that time on, we've seen the kingdom of God build up. Uh, uh, upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom he shall sit to order and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth even forever. And then we're told the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. It's the power of God that brings this about. If we look around and say, well, we're weak. How can this happen? We're just weak. We don't have the strength to do it. Good. You finally figured out how it's going to be done. You're not going to do it. God is. That's why Jesus didn't say, and you get out there and you make God's kingdom come. And you get out there and you make sure his will is done. Oh, and at the end, and you say, uh, Lord, we're going to make everybody submit because uh, yours is the kingdom, but we're, we're the ones that bring it about. That's a prayer, <laughs> okay? You say, this is what you need to be asking God to be doing. In Daniel, in his uh, study of God's word, in Daniel chapter 9, you want to flip over there real quick. We've got to end this. I realize uh, the time has flown, but thank you for your patience. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel talks about his study of the book of Jeremiah. Now, Daniel was taken away in that first captivity. Those of you who have been with us on Tuesday nights, and you remember there was a first captivity, and God told them, I've taken you away for your own good. And in the second captivity, pretty much that was a bloodbath. That was horrible because those are the people that rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar and against God. Uh, so Daniel was taken away, grew up, as you know the story of Daniel, in the book of Daniel. In chapter 9, we're told, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. If you've been with us on Tuesday nights, uh, this Darius may very well be the son of King Ahasuerus and Esther. <laughs> okay. Uh, rather interesting. By the way, there's, there's more than one Darius mentioned in Daniel. But in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So he read the book of Jeremiah, and he concluded... Rightfully so, God had said very clearly, 70 years are appointed. They're going to, the captivity is going to last 70 years. He under, from his perspective, he understood some eschatology, things that were further ahead in history than his own time. He understood, ah, 70 years. So about this time he wrote, they were about halfway through that. So he realizes that. He realizes, all right, we're going to be get to, we go back. For, from their perspective, we get to go back home. Things are going to be better. What did he do with that? This is important for us. If we understand the promise, we need to understand what our response needs to be. Lord, what he says in verse 3, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Note this. Daniel didn't say, well, God said he's going to do it, so I don't need to do anything. I just go about my business. God said he's going to do it. No, no. Once he understood what God's plan and purpose was, he began to pray. <laughs> what should our response be? If you believe, well, you know what? The cause, Christ is going to build his church. And the kingdom of God will be triumphant. And however that's going to manifest itself, we know it'll 
be all the elect, whether there's a huge ingathering of the Gentiles. I believe that's so. But you know God's going to be victorious. What should our response be to the truths that we hold? Prayer. That's why Jesus said, pray. Your kingdom come. He didn't say, and don't worry about praying about it because it's already been decreed. It's going to happen. You don't need to do anything. You see, God has decreed for the kingdom of Christ to triumph. He's also decreed for it to triumph by his power in answering the prayers of his people. So if you want to see a further manifestation of the kingdom of God in your own life, in your family, in your church, and in your society, beloved, we need to pray. We need to pray. And by the way, I mentioned Daniel chapter 9. I'd encourage you today, if you get, when you get home, okay, after, after services, read the whole chapter. Because the majority of that chapter has to do with Daniel's prayer. It wasn't a shallow little, oh Lord, you know, uh, help us. It's a big, long prayer confessing the sins of God's people, asking God to intervene. It's a wonderful statement. You can learn a lot about God. Read Daniel chapter 9 today. That's your homework assignment. And at the end of chapter 9, it talks about there was going to be 490 years before Messiah came. So he got the 70-year part, understood that. And then God tells him at the end of the chapter, from Daniel's perspective, living in the 5th century B.C., within four, actually 490 years, 7 times 7, Messiah is going to come. So he was actually told, by the way, the 70 years, you got that. There's something else you need to know. Within uh, 490 years, the Messiah is coming. And they knew that. That's why people in Jerusalem were looking for the Messiah. Remember Simeon and Anna? So we need to remember this. So the result of this is God's going to build his kingdom. We need to pray. So, beloved, let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that it's true. We thank you for the Holy Scriptures, Lord, that are powerful by your action through your Holy Spirit. Help us, we pray, Lord, to further your kingdom as you give us grace and as you empower your church and your people. And help us to love you and to love others and to do those good works, Lord, that you've called us to do in serving your people and serving others that have needs. So thank you, Lord. We do pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory now and ever shall be. And we ask all these things in Jesus' 